everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have guests from the Duke Wrongful Conviction Clinic, and we are going to be discussing the case of Andrew Jr. Chandler, who was convicted back in 1987 coming up on 34 years this month uh, for a high profile series of child molestation cases. And we'll get into the details there. But first I wanna have uh, our panel uh, introduce themselves. We'll start with John. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is John Sack and I'm a second year law student at Duke, a member of Duke Law's Wrongful Convictions Clinic. Um, and I'm one of the students that's been working on this case this semester. And we'll go to Meredith. Um, so same from me. Thank you for having us. I'm also a second year law student at Duke Law in the Wrongful Convictions Clinic and the other uh, a student assigned to this case for the semester. And Teresa? Hey. Um, hi, David. So uh, Teresa Newman. I am one of the directors of the Wrongful Convictions Clinic, a lawyer uh, trained at Duke Law School. So I'm a Duke graduate. I've been working on this case for quite a while. And um, each semester, uh, each semester, each year, we add more students to the clinic. So John, uh, to the case. So John and Meredith are our current students, and um, we are so grateful to have their help. And Jim Coleman. Hi, David. Uh, I'm Jim Coleman. I'm the other co-director of the clinic, and um, I've been um, sort of consulting with uh, Teresa uh, during the time that we've had the case, but I have uh, started to play a more prominent role uh, this semester. And Dave. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Dave Martin. As indicated, I'm a retired attorney from upstate New York. Uh, practiced there for a little over 40 years, primarily in business and commercial litigation. I've been interested in the Innocence Project for a number of years, and I think it was a little over two years ago, I contacted Duke and uh, Professor Newman responded very, very quickly and said, uh, quote, <laughs> they would accept, end quote. And I said, what do you accept? And they said, well, any volunteer work that I'd like to provide. So I've enjoyed it and uh, they're interesting cases. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, so this case is, really interesting. I've just uh, been able to dive into it in the last few days. Um, and it's kind of interesting the way this kind of came down. Uh, so the first trial in this case ended 
uh, with a hung jury in February of 1987. And, uh, you know, instead of waiting several months to retry it, they did it almost immediately back, uh, the next month in March. Um, he ends up getting acquitted on some of the charges and then he gets convicted on five counts of first degree sexual offense, six counts of taking indecent liberties with a minor. I've never actually heard uh, that charge described that way. And one count of crimes against nature. Um, and for that, uh, he, he's sentenced uh, to two consecutive life sentences. And just because that's not enough, they add 21 years to it. Um, so, um, how does he end up getting a double life sentence out of all that? I, I'm I'm trying to kind of uh, untease how this all works. Uh, oh my goodness! So I'll 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 tackle that. And one thing you you uh, didn't cover in your in your short uh, procedural history is that it was tried a month later in a different district. So the very very unusual for the state to move for a change of venue. Change of venue usually occurs when it's requested by the defendant because he can't get a fair trial because of press coverage or for other reasons in the county in which he's tried. But um, in fact, North Carolina statute doesn't even uh, contemplate uh, the state, the prosecution moving for a change of venue. But here, um, the prosecution uh, moved and in, in the, the court's inherent authority uh, in the interest of justice moved it to a county, uh, to a different county. And, and the state, the state, the, the reasons for which they wanted it to be moved is because Junior had too much, uh, we call him Junior, uh, he is Andrew Junior Chandler, I'll, I'll call him Mr. Chandler, but Mr. Chandler had uh, too much uh, support in the, in the county um, because he was very well known. It's a small rural county north uh, of the county in which Asheville, North Carolina sits. A lot of listeners or viewers will know Asheville, um, kind of a hot tourist place. Um, and it's just a small rural town and he was well, well known and respected. So the, the state, the prosecution felt they couldn't get a fair trial and moved it to another county. So on the on the sentences, you know, it, it's funny because yes, two consecutive life sentences plus twenty one years. Um, I sometimes think he was lucky he didn't get much more because the cases that arose in that period, that period of near hysteria and child sex abuse cases in the United States and around the world. Um, I think the uh, another famous case in North Carolina was the Little Rascals case. And he was convicted on 99 counts, the, the owner of the daycare center, 99 counts. I can't remember how many life sentences he received, um, but Mr. Chandler received two for the first degree sex offenses and then 21 years for the, um, for the other charges. All of which is so important to state from the very beginning, never happened. So our, our contention and our proof shows, our contention is that there was no crime, there was no abuse, just like in so many other cases that arose during that period. It was just a, a, a runaway train of allegations. And I'll get into uh, a lot of that in a, in a second. Um, you know, I just kind of wanted to untease a little bit of this, um, you know, the, 
Uh, ironically, uh, the first uh, wrongful conviction case I ever covered, uh, the guy ended up being sentenced to 378 years. And, it, and my jaw just dropped because I'm like, why would you do that? Um, it, it, it was all, it was a serial uh, 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 child rape case, uh, which also never happened. Uh, but um, so what are the circumstances? Um, and, and we'll get into kind of this issue of uh, the 1980s, uh, which is when I was growing up and I remember uh, the McMartin case really well. And I remember being shocked that uh, they were acquitted. Uh, a little bit, I realized that uh, later in my life, I, I'd be shocked the other way. But, um, uh, you know, what happens to Mr. Chandler here? How does he get caught up in all this stuff? Uh, what What's kind of the circumstance of the allegation? Um, I'll, I'll take that and then I, I, I will let others take other questions. But the um, what we've the motion for appropriate relief that we filed in uh, the state court to over, get his conviction overturned really sets out um, how in leaving aside the, the 1980s context that we're going to talk about later, how did Mr. Chandler get caught up in this? And I think it started with just looking at the details of his job. Mr. Chandler was a, um, a van driver for a Department of Social Services funded daycare center. So he had kids from two to five years old on the van. At the same time, he would transport um, some cognitively impaired adults from a, from a work center um, and the, you know, they're all on the van at the same time. And this is the mountains of North Carolina. So the, it took about an hour and a half to get everybody home from daycare and home from the work center. But meanwhile, people are on, on this van together. Um, there's a longer story here, but what happened is that some of the children started to talk about the quote, married people on the bus doing married people things. And the married people on the bus, which is actually a small van, but they called it a bus, the children did, um, that the married people were two of the cognitively paired, impaired adults with IQs between 60 and 68. And they were boyfriend and girlfriend. And they um, lived in a care home had been intimate in the care home and had been separated and sometimes on the van had been intimate there as well. And the children talked about it and just given the times and given uh, the size of the community and how uh, innuendo and rumor and um, allegations ripple through, um, it, before the, at the end of the day, uh, the children were saying that they had been uh, molested, abused by those two married people who became co-defendants in this case um, and the van driver, Mr. Chandler. So this is, you know, this sounds a lot like, um, you know, a lot of these other cases, which is of course why in the filings, they brought in kind of this moral panic and uh, hysteria 
um, during this period about child sexual abuse. And of course, this is also a time when a lot of parents or both parents are starting to work, uh, especially in the 80s. Um, and so they have to leave their kids with strangers. And, and there was this kind of uh, panic, you know, stranger danger and, uh, and, and, you know, the McMartin case and some of these other high profile cases. Um, how does that play into this case? Teresa, you have to talk about this stuff. You, you, you know it better than the rest of us. Uh, uh, I, yeah. Uh, why don't you start? And I'll, I, I, okay. I know this way too much because this is not my first case. Um, what yeah. happens, and Jim Coleman will tell you, whatever area of, you know, that our case eyewitness identification or child sex abuse, the press covers it if your client is exonerated. And then we get a flurry of contacts um, from others. And in fact, uh, though you may be planning to ask me about this later, I'll tell you um, how we got this, this case because it kind of ex explains my point I just made. We had another client who had a um, a, a child sex abuse convictions, multiple life sentences, and his case had satanic elements also from the mountains of North Carolina. Um, but there was levitation in his case, the children alleged levitation and drinking of blood and um, ropes and fires. And, um, and we were, we were successful in having his conviction overturned. The judge got it. Um, and uh, when uh, he was being released uh, and the court was making his ruling, I, as lawyers do, went up to the court um, with my, to the judge, with my co-counsel and, and thanked him um, and told, nice meeting you, thanked him. And at that time, because we knew that that client was going to be exonerated, a lawyer in town in Durham, Mr. Um, Chandler's former lawyer, had said, would we take a look at the file in Mr. Chandler's case because his earlier efforts had failed? And I said, I'm, I'm an easy mark. As Dave Martin said, you know, he calls me up. I say, yes, we'll, 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 we'll take your help. So I'm an easy mark. I, I told that lawyer, yes, I would look at the case, but we could not take the case because we had a full... Um, complement of cases. And uh, frankly, these are exhausting cases. They take a tremendous amount of work, tremendous investigation, and we were just wrapping one up. Um, but I got the files and I was going to look at it. And then fast forward, shaking the judge's hand. The judge is a big person. He's sitting at the, on the bench and he leans over and says to me, um, there's another innocent man who needs help. The, the judge and I, the judge said that to me, and I said because I was trying to protect my own cl clinic's interests, and I said to myself, "Oh, please let it. Don't say Junior Chandler." I didn't say that out loud, and the judge said, "Another innocent man from the mountains, and it's Junior Chandler." So then, so then we, we took the case. 
um, then we had to take the case. Uh, my, co my colleagues and I talked about it, but then we decided to take uh, the case. But all of that, so, so how does that relate back to hysteria? Both of those cases arose at the exact same period in the mid to late 80s and the early 90s. And that's when they all arose. I mean, you yourself said, David, that you, you know, the first case you looked at was something like this and it probably arose to McMartin, Little Rascals, the New Jersey case. They're all over the United States and most of them have fallen. Uh, most of them, it has been proven that they were um, wrongful convictions. It's, you, you said it perfectly, I think, that there were all these children were in with, with strangers and people were concerned and they thought predators, the satanic element, there was a belief that satanic predators um, were roaming the United States and men, you couldn't leave children with men. And it just, it was, a wild time. And I, I like to believe, and I have said this uh, in, in while representing uh, the prayer, prayer uh, client and Mr. Chandler, I have said that it wouldn't, this wouldn't happen today. But then quite frankly, <laughs> we recently were contacted by somebody who's interested in the QAnon conspiracies and tying it back to how these how this got started in the 80s and the early 90s. So I, I'm not sure it wouldn't happen today. Um, there's, there's much more that Jonathan Beck, I think his name is Jonathan Beck, wrote a good book that I used when I was trying to wrap my head around, uh, he's a reporter around these issues and kind of sets out um, really how, how it happened and how people suspended disbelief in, in, the, in these cases. So, it just was a moment in time, which I fear um, isn't completed, though I do believe that Mr. Chandler's convictions that stand are one of the few that stand of these kinds of cases. Yeah. I, oh, go ahead. Well, what I was just going to add that it's easy to see that if there's a public allegation, meaning an allegation that gets to the prosecution, to the prosecutor or to the police, that uh, a child is being abused, I think it would represent the highest duty that the prosecutor and the police had to check that out, to determine whether that's true. Uh, and I think politically and morally, uh, you know, they would feel an obligation uh, to protect the children. That's, you know, that there's nothing that they can do that would, you know, is more important than that. The problem is that the prosecutors and the police don't exercise any independent judgment in these cases. Um, and they basically just run with it. Uh, and the charges keep changing and they morph into, you know, bizarre stuff and they're on spaceships and, you know, and the prosecutor just rolls with that. And eventually, you know, they, they have to cut it off and they go to trial and they present whatever they're left with. And, you know, and that, that's what happens. Jurors are in the same position though, right? Because, you know, they, they want to protect the children too. And if they think that there's any chance that something like this is happening, they're not going to let this person uh, go free. Um, so if the prosecutors aren't exercising independent judgment in these cases, the defendant doesn't have a chance. 
it, it is amazing. And I think, you know, um, having lived, um, you know, I was in high school in the 80s. So I'm kind of in the middle of uh, the age uh, range uh, of this group. But uh, what, what's really interesting thinking back now is how paranoid uh, the adults were about things like satanic uh, cults and right. and the, the this idea that uh, you were gonna if you listen to a certain kind of music uh, you were gonna get sucked in uh, to uh, 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 to to satanic worship and uh, you know I remember some of the what was it Geraldo or or, or whatnot <laughs> and some of the stuff I mean you know you. Uh, the the younger folks here probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but you know it, it was it was very different at, at, at that time. Um, but I do want to bring them into the uh, conversation. So maybe um, uh, John and Meredith, you can talk about how you got involved in this case and and, and kind of what work uh, you guys have done and how that's. Uh, incorporated into your ongoing education? Yeah, so I'll start. So last semester I took a class that Duke offers um, called Federal Habeas Corpus, and it really takes a broad overview of the federal system in post-conviction review. Um, and I really enjoyed that class. Um, and I really learned kind of how even, you know, just a plain worded statute can have really, really big effects on people's lives at the federal level. And so Going into this semester, I knew that I wanted to, you know, work and help fix the injustices that we heard about all last semester. So I signed up for this clinic and then I was put on the Junior Chandler team. Um, and it's really, it's been really a great place to work and a great time this semester working. Obviously, the circumstances in which I'm here are less than ideal. I wish that Duke didn't have a wrongful convictions clinic only because that would mean that no one was wrongfully convicted in prison. But knowing that that's the reality, there's great work um, that we're able to do. And so I think one of the things that's really stood out to me is, you know, my family and I were big like Law and Order fans growing up. And so we'd watch Law and Order and they always have their token episode about how you know, they don't know if someone was wrongfully convicted and the whole episode is like listening to the internal battle of the police department trying to figure out whether or not they accidentally put someone in prison wrongfully. Um, and that was kind of my vision of how wrongful convictions happened. It was this, oh, you know, all the evidence lined up for person A, but, you know, out of nowhere, we figured out it was actually person B after 25 years and everyone feels awful about it. Um, but, you know, on my time in this clinic, in my time kind of last semester as well, you really learned that in a lot of sense, that's not really how any of these wrongful, wrongful convictions happen. And I don't think that's how it happened in this case. I think um, in some sense, there may have been some foul plans and misplaying. We talk about that in our motion for appropriate relief. But it's just one of those things that, you know, as a law student, you, you walk in with this vision of what the criminal justice system is and what it does. Um, and this seminar and this clinic has been really, really eye-opening to see, you know, what it's like on the ground and to know that, well, last semester, you know, I was reading out of a textbook. This semester, I'm learning the same thing, but it's a real person. It's a real client um, who's wrongfully convicted. So just that, that personable experience and really having to work on this because it's actually a person in prison, not just a page on a textbook, has been really eye-opening. Um, and it's been, um, it's been great being a part of this team this semester. Meredith? 
Yeah, so kind of how I got involved is I knew going into law school, I wanted to work for the Innocence Project and Wrongful Convictions Clinic. Um, I was on the Innocence Project active investigation team my 1L year and then lead one this year um, and then joined the clinic. And so what kind of motivated me was that that phrase, I can't remember who said it, but I think it's a, the Brandeis ratio, where it's better to have 100 guilty people go free than one innocent person be convicted. And I just wholeheartedly believe that. And so that's why um, I'm kind of passionate about this work. And um, one, one thing that I want to bring up that we worked on and kind of tying it back to this case specifically, and something that's really stood out to me in this case, is something that we just filed as an exhibit, the Van Rout affidavit. And basically what that says is that there's not a day where this abuse could have happened given the necessary predicates. And so for abuse to happen, um, just looking here, uh, the daycare had to be in session. Mr. Chandler had to be driving the bus. The alleged victims had to be at daycare and riding the bus. The co-defendants had to be on the bus and there couldn't have been anyone else on the bus. Um, some of those uh, mentally impaired adults that said abuse didn't happen. And in, if you combine all of those factors, there's not a single day where abuse could have happened. And that is just striking to me that if you look at the procedural history of this case, um, that, that no one recognizes that and no one kind of captures like like what I say for the case is that it's a totality of circumstances just so much went wrong in it and there's just so much uh, uh, evidence that he isn't guilty that Mr. Chandler isn't guilty and it, it takes me to a quote that we've talked about a lot um, in the clinic from Judge Wynn on the Fourth Circuit during Ronnie Long's case where he just says and it, it, it's personal to me too because I kind of believe in stare decisis and judicial restraint but but why is it that in these cases we we give so much credence, like rely so much on these past decisions? Why don't we look at new evidence and why don't we consider whether the person really is guilty or not? Um, and so, yeah, that's what I have to add. <laughs> I, I just, I need to jump on, on to that, Meredith, because uh, as Meredith and, and John know, but my other colleagues don't, that we quote from Judge Wynn in what we're filing right now, um, in response to the judge's um, recent order. And what the, the line I love is when Judge Wynn says, well, a couple of lines, but what makes us so afraid of these cases? Why are we afraid to look at them? And then he repeats several times, when did justice leave the process? This is a federal judge sitting in the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in oral argument in another one of our cases that suffered a similar procedural fate where there was just um, the our opposing counsel at every turn was um, ob obstructed and was, a, quote, afraid to look at these cases. And judges are um, inclined in these old cases to bar claims uh, based on procedural grounds. So I, I really am delighted that you brought up Judge, Judge Wynn. And I covered uh, um, actually that uh, hearing where, where Judge Wynn uh, said that. I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised uh, to, to see them, uh, them end up uh, freeing uh, Ronnie Long. Um, that was that was an amazing uh, thing to to witness. I hadn't actually witnessed one of those uh, personally like that uh, before, so that was really fun to watch. Um, in terms of this case, um, what what's striking to me, I mentioned uh, kind of the procedural history. Um, so so why is it that 
that the jurors are hanging and then they end up acquitting him on a bunch of charges. What what is it about the original charging that the jury was even skeptical of? Yeah, he didn't he didn't get acquitted of too many charges, but there was one of the there were seven children um, in the case. And remember, this was it, it hung in a different county, right? So then it was moved to what everyone tells me um, back then was the more sophisticated county that believed that just about any darn thing could have happened up there in the other county where this case arose. So there was this, this notion that uh, even, I mean, I hate to, well, there was just a notion that that was a, a backwards county as compared to Buncombe. The, the county of Asheville. And, um, but the charges, uh, so one of the children, he was acquitted on re, uh, the charges related to one of the girl children. And that was the, and the, this brings up another really important point, but that was one of the, that was the girl who didn't have um, the, the uh, which the doctors did not observe the medical a symptom, medical, they didn't make a medical observation about that girl child that they made about the other four girl children, that medical observation that at the time was believed not only diagnostic of sexual abuse, but dispositive of abuse. So the girl child, they didn't see that in that girl child. So they didn't conclude that she was definitely abused the doctors, medical doctors, but that she was very likely abused based on her history. In the medical world, history just means your reports of abuse. It doesn't mean, you know, demonstrated history of abuse, it's reports of abuse. But the other thing about this little, this little girl, I had this note somewhere, so that I, but she was on the bus for eight, she wrote, she was in daycare and wrote the band a very short time. And we do have some of the, the, the first trials jurors reports and they were they were concerned about how short a time frame she was um, riding on the van. And just cause it, you know, it, the very thing that Meredith was talking about, what we call the impossibility uh, defense, right? We're, we're, was there any day on which the allegations aligned as yeah, the allegations as made by the state, as made by the children, um, where they aligned um, to make that a, a possible day? And for this little girl, there were just so few days, and she didn't have that, um, that, that they didn't make the medical observation about her. Understood. Um, so I'm going to read a couple of uh, quotes from the filing, which I think are really illuminating. And then I want to get into kind of a deeper dive into the evidence of innocence here. Um, so, so one is overall more than 150 defendants were initially charged in at least 10 major si child sex abuse and satanic ritual prosecutions across the country from 1984 to 1995, and at least 72 were convicted, um, it's clear that a great majority were totally innocent. And then uh, the second quote is, at the center of many of these prosecutions were well-meaning but misguided healthcare professionals, social workers, and others who were concerned about children's safety 
especially given that unprecedented numbers of children were in the care of near strangers at daycare centers. So I think these two quotes are really interesting because um, a lot of this, you know, it, there's nothing malicious going on here. They're trying to protect children, but they made mistakes. What mistakes were they making here? What, what's so interesting about those two quotes, and there are more like those that we wrote, <laughs> is that the when so we file our motion and then the state, uh, the prosecution is ordered by the judge to reply. And we were taken to task for um, trying to, with those contextual comments, right? The, the providing the context, explaining how this case arose during that period, explaining that these people were not evil doers, that they were uh, the people who, the medical doctors, the, the social workers, they, they, they were all, I believe with one exception, well-intentioned. And, uh, but we were criticized in a filing by the state for trying to prove innocence by association. <laughs> Meaning that Mr. Chandler's innocent, uh, as if that was all we, you know, I, I did notice this morning that there's 40 pages of setup to this 100 plus page motion, but the 40 pages of setup is so important because the context is so important. You have to, in all of our cases, and this is what Jim Coleman always tells our clinic students when we start the semester, we, when we first start an investigation, we, we assume the person is innocent and then, you know, because they're claiming innocence, we say, okay, well, if that's true, how did this happen? How did the allegations arise? How did the person get convicted? So that's what we were doing in this, in this motion for appropriate relief. We were providing the necessary context for the judge to understand how an innocent man was ensnared by the times, by the beliefs of the times, by the medical science of the times, the psychological science, uh, and you have to include that. So, um, and the first quote is the numbers quote that comes from the National Registry of Exonerations, I believe, which is a, a, an organization that tracks um, exonerations of all and all of all crimes. Um, and so those numbers are, are correct, I believe. <laughs> Maurice will be glad to know that. <laughs> Maurice has hounded us after each one of our, Maurice Posley, uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who now lives in California. And, and uh, I don't know what his role is in the registry now, but for years was the person who wrote um, the summaries and, and made sure the numbers were correct and hounded all of the lawyers across the United States for the data on our cases. So we know Maurice well. Yes. Um, so, uh, but I, I want to get back to kind of my question, which was, you know, what went wrong here in terms of uh, you know, this prosecution, you know, what is the evidence for innocence? Um, you know, kind of the broader question, maybe we can bring the students in since they've been uh, researching this. Um, you know, what what jumps out at you? I mean, you know, what, what what's kind of the bullet point that you say, oh, he's definitely innocent? 
Um, you know, what do you hang your hat on? Yes, I'll go first really quickly. So Meredith and I have actually, I would think there's kind of two main things to me that stand out for him being innocent. And the first is a litany of things that we allege the state withheld or didn't disclose before trial that they're constitutionally required to. Um, and those are a number of things between um, adult passengers saying nothing happened, people who lived in the area saying nothing happened, but really what stands out is the facts is the fact that a number of medical experts testified at trial and a number of social workers did it well, did as well to a number of summaries um, that they had when they were interviewing children. And so the summaries kind of attempted to lay out what happened, um, but it's very clear that the summaries were not actual highlights of what happened at the interview. And so I don't have any specific examples in front of me, but you know, the, the summary will lay out what looks like a, a, a child clearly saying that Mr. Chandler did something. But then when you actually look at the transcript, what it was, was the kid saying nothing or even denying the charge. And then the interviewer constantly giving leading questions, constantly asking again and again, asking, you know, oh, but where did Mr. Chandler do it? And, you know, when I'm reading over the differences, it's really, really stark because if you read the summaries, it tells one story, but then you read the actual transcript that the state didn't disclose until well after the trial was over. And you're, you know, you're left with a sense of shock of, you know, I can't believe they testified to this at trial because that's just not what happened. Um, and so, and then the other thing that is really the impossibility chart that we mentioned before. Um, if you see it, it's really powerful just to see how every day falls off and off and off. And then you're left with just a number of months that this could have never happened. Um, and, you know, we're reading the chart and if the state were to rebut it, it would require them to possibly, you know, say one of their witnesses wasn't being truthful on the stand or, you know, say that the kids were there when the evidence clearly says they doesn't. And so, you know, it's one thing in, you know, Professor Newman calls me the team skeptic, and I'm always thinking about what the state could say. But even I, when I read this chart, I was just kind of taken aback saying, you know, there's no way. You know, I'm always trying to think of, oh, what would the state say so we can jump ahead of that? But I was really just left in shock with, you know, the research that we all did, what the chart says. I just, I, the, can I add one oh, thing? Go ahead. David, just one thing that what and so important, I, I think everyone is really uh, to agree with John when they read the, the, the difference, the interviews, the actual recorded transcribed actual recorded interviews of the children. And then um, the summaries, the summaries actually were called, they were pre prepared by the social worker who interviewed the children with the doctors and sometimes without the doctors present. And they were called highlights. She said they were highlights and they, and they would look like transcripts. So they'd have the child's name and then they'd have the doctor's question then the child's name. And those were what they did. And the highlight, they were indeed highlights. They were highlights for the prosecution. They were in some cases we proved and because we finally got the interviews later, but we proved that pages would go by where the child is either completely denying any abuse is denying Junior, uh, Mr. Chandler was involved in the abuse, is, is inserting fantastic elements, like fantastical, not great, but fantastic elements of fantasy. And that, but the, the, the highlights, the summaries John's talking about, they go straight to, and like, <laughs> so I asked her, did somebody hurt you? She says, yes, Junior did. 
What did he do? He did this. And it's like pages of suggestive, persistent interviewing um, repeated with repeated denials until you get that. So how is the state responding uh, to your claim? So there's a whole, so first I, I'll, I'll just say that there's a whole litany of medical evidence that's now just proved that Meredith did a lot of research on. So I'll kind of reserve that and how the state responds it um, until she gets a chance to respond. But as far as the withheld evidence goes, um, so, you know, the basic outline of a Brady claim is that it has to be withheld, it has to be material, um, and it has to be beneficial. And so the state, you know, first, they always put up in bold letters, you know, this is procedurally barred. You know, if they can win on that, then they don't even have to touch the merits, which, in my opinion, aren't great for them. But, you know, they always put the big neon sign that says, you know, don't worry about the merits of the case, worry about, you know, the procedural bar. And so the state uses a number of arguments. They say, you know, you should have brought this up before, or you had some weird version of this at trial, or it's not favorable at all. But for example, there's one um, part where the state says you have one person who denied anything happened that day. And our evidence is that two other people denied anything happened that day. Uh, and I think it's a it's a curious argument to say that there's no difference between one person saying something didn't happen versus three people saying something didn't happen. And so, I, you know, I think the state is willing to pull every punch they can to make sure that our MAR gets denied. But really, I think it, it starts first with procedural bars and then it moves down to, you know, oh, this isn't material or, oh, this isn't exculpatory. But I think what's rather unique is that as far as the impossibility chart goes, the first motion for appropriate relief that we filed, you know, mentions it not very explicitly, but it says that there's very, very few days that this could happen. And the state says nothing about it. And then we file an exhibit that very clearly says there's not a day that this could happen. And we have still yet to hear a word from the state on that. And so we even say in the uh, MAR that the state might have even started investigating it, but abandoned it. Um, and I think it's very interesting how, you know, kind of through all of this, the state has been so willing to pull every argument out of their hat to make sure that this motion for appropriate relief gets denied. And yet, you know, basically what could be the ace in the hole, they haven't touched once. And so I think it's rather telling that the state, all of their filings hasn't said anything other than one small statement about it um, was available to the defense before trial. Um, and, and let's bring in Meredith here to kind of uh, address the point that you just made about the uh, medical evidence. Um, so basically the state addresses the medical evidence and, and even the judge in the most recent order uh, by saying the basic underpinnings of the research were there, even if not in their crystallized form. And that's an exact quote from the judge's order. And I, I think that's kind of wild because um, if how was the previous um, attorneys in this case supposed to rely on something that wasn't in their crystallized form just because um, kind of a, a theory of science that was going around in the 1980s was raised um, that's different than now known today to be false medical testimony what was uh, testified to at the trial but by those doctors they would not be admitted as experts today to testify on those same things because the medical evidence is not supported anymore. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's false. Um, and so that, that is the response from both the state and the judge, but, but we could test that 
And then um, to go back to kind of the highlight summaries that Professor Newman was talking about and John, um, I, I think the percentages of how much the children spoke versus how much the interviewers and doctors spoke um, is really, uh, is also really wild. So, so just to give you an example, um, in one of the children's interviews, there were roughly 6,000 words spoken during the full interview and only 7% of those words, only 400 words were from the child themselves. So just looking at how suggestible um, these interviews were um, and, and exactly like what Professor Newman and, and John said, it's just, it's, it's like a totality of circumstances case. There's so much going on that um, it, it's, it's sad that the state continues to respond to these uh, claims and kind of deny the evidence that we've presented. And, and Dave, if I if I may add at this point something that Meredith just brought up regarding the uh, the children's interviews and the numbers of words spoken or responses from the children, so the child you know may have responded with four hundred or so words out of six thousand, uh, but many of those words, many of those responses were I don't know, Junior didn't do it, or in fact stated other people had, had committed. The sexual abuse. So as you look at these tra transcripts and then certainly compare them to the summaries from which the doctors testified, it is substantially different. And, and those summaries in no way include any exculpatory information or any denials or any hesitation on behalf of the children, uh, you know, pointing toward uh, hesitation and, and saying Junior did it. Can I, can I just, uh, right, oh, if, I mean, that is the stunning thing. And we kind of just did that. This is the beauty of having a clinic with student assistance. Uh, before we filed the MAR, we, when we were looking at the interviews, we said, who's, who's doing the talking here? Who's, who's, so we just said, let's, I mean, <laughs> I am so cruel. I said, can somebody count the words? So they counted all the words and divided up how, and then figured out the percentages and then when I talked to um, Dr. David, uh, David Mantel um, from Connecticut, who is a, a child sex abuse forensic psychologist for the state, he said, that's actually a common forensic technique in child sex abuse cases, child interviewing, to figure out who's actually doing the reporting of the abuse. You look at how many, who's, who's, who does the talking, who's doing the, the bulk of it. And the one that we included, I mean, I think we included all of the numbers in the motion. So you would have seen that David, but one of the children, it was 1156 words. It was a short interview, 1156, 11, if I can read what uh, I have on my screen, 1123. So 1,156 spoken words during the interview, 1,123 were by the adult interviewers. So uh, 33 words, 33 words. And keep in mind what David said about what those words were. But I think it's really important to go back to the medical evidence because I think the medical evidence and the time in which this case arose is really what set this it, you know, set this case off, put the, the train on the wrong track. It was believed at the time by the medical community, by, the, you know, by, by doctors. Um, it was believed, but it was an assumption because it wasn't based on research. It wasn't based on science, but it was believed. And I'm sorry to say this in polite company, I've talked about such things, but if a little girl's, a female child's vaginal opening was larger than four millimeters, that it was diagnostic of abuse. 
So, so other than that one child that I told you, you know, Junior was acquitted of, the other four girl children, the doctors said they saw um, that the vaginal openings were four millimeters or larger and therefore diagnostic of abuse. They, they, uh, they concluded that these girl children had been abused. Why? I mean, that's today. Um, and it's because of all these crazy cases that arose during this period, researchers got really interested in, is that true? Do we, what, what, why are we saying this? Is this true? And they did this research that Meredith was alluding to or referencing. They did this research and determined, oh my goodness, there's wide variability in the size of these openings. Now, Lawyers are lawyers because they will, somebody will tell you they're not good at math, they're not good at science. That's not always true. But I wasn't quite sure what four millimeters was, what that looked like. Um, so we had another student uh, develop with an engineer, uh, develop a graphic that is in the um, motion for appropriate relief that shows relative to, I can't remember the coins that were used, but like a quarter and a nickel or something, how tiny how truly tiny four millimeters and then five millimeters is. You know, I think it goes one, two, three, four, five and up. And these doctors said they eyeballed these openings in these children. They testified that they had, they're tiny. They testified that they may have had a ruler in the room, but they didn't necessarily use it. This man has been in prison for 34 years on the basis of their observations, which are, you know, of the size of these little girls' vaginal openings, um, that now, introituses, I think is the actual medical term, but, and they didn't use, so, okay, well, leave that aside for a moment. What we know today is that that medical evidence is bogus, it's false. It doesn't support a finding. It is not diagnostic of, diagnostic of sexual abuse. But in 1986, when these children were being interviewed, and in 1987, when Junior was being convicted, uh, they justified um, persistent questioning because under another belief at the time, the child sexual abuse accommodation syndrome, it was believed that children were reluctant to divulge. They were embarrassed. They were afraid. They were intimidated by their abusers. So they were reluctant to divulge the details of abuse. So once you believed they were abused on the basis of the medical, now, now discredited medical evidence, it justified any means you could use, short of torture, I believe, to elicit the uh, particulars of the abuse from these children who, and I don't think we've said this yet, were two years old to five years old. I think there were two two-year-olds, two three-year-olds, two four-year-olds, and one five-year-old. I think that's right. They were, they were one was pre-verbal, one had um, significant um, speech impairment that you couldn't understand him. These were little children. And they were persistently, repeatedly questioned, not in single interviews, in multiple interviews, until these highlight summaries were created that were, you know, again, these people believed these children had been, had been abused. So they, they, they did what they could to, to prosecute um, the people that they believed to be, they, they concluded were the abusers. I'm really fighting the urge to do the face palm right now. I I, I got to tell you, um, 
Yeah, no, um, you know, so, so basically this is junk science, um, you know, which, uh, you know, they, they had an assumption, it wasn't scientifically tested. It's like Brandon Garrett's book that just came out. Uh, and, and they, uh, and they used that as the basis for the underlying belief. And then they tried to sculpt the, um, the victims, quote unquote, uh, uh, testimony or descriptions to fit that narrative. Uh, is that a fair summary? So I wanna ask you, Jim, uh, this question, even though I kind of know the answer to it, but I, I think it's a, a really, it, it bothers me a lot um, as somebody who covers uh, this stuff. Um, you know, uh, you know what John was describing was all of these procedural uh, barriers that uh, the state is putting up. You would think that the state would want to find out if they have uh, incarcerated a a person wrongly, um, and that uh, they would be more interested in justice than arguing, "Oh, well, this issue's already been raised." Uh, you know. I, I mean, I think that that's what a layperson would would argue, but that's not what happens. Uh, can you comment on that? Well, that's not what happens at all. Uh, you know, and prosecutors and attorney generals, uh, you know, they run around the state and they talk about, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, officers of justice and you know their role is to seek justice uh you know that the state wins when justice is done and all of that in fact uh you know once they get a conviction they have no interest at all uh in whether in fact the person was uh, uh guilty uh and and we see this all the time i uh, we have prosecutors who will absolutely ignore every fact that we present to them uh, and simply rely on uh, some procedural issue, some procedural bar uh, in order to defend the conviction. Uh, we've had prosecutors who've said to us, you know, we, we think this guy is probably innocent. We don't believe he would have been convicted uh, today. We don't, I know he wouldn't have been convicted if I had represented him, but my obligation is to defend the conviction on any grounds that it can be defended on. Uh, and when we run into a prosecutor who takes that view of the job, a minister of justice, uh, you know, we get a case like this. On the other hand, when we, uh, you know, when we find a prosecutor who's actually willing to ignore the procedural defaults or not to raise them, uh, and focus on the fact, you know, we've we've had a, a number of our exonerations have been the result of prosecutors who look at the facts, and they conclude that we're right on the facts, you know, and 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 so their view is, as as a minister of justice would, uh, that this person shouldn't be in prison. The person is innocent. Uh, the problem is we don't have that many prosecutors and attorney general. Uh, who take that approach to their job? I I just you know to me that 
is the most baffling part of all of this wrongful conviction problem uh, that that faces this country. I, I get how mistakes are made. Right. That makes sense, uh, especially you know when you have people that may think that they know what happened and and they really didn't. Um, but you know, not wanting to correct the mistakes. Um, you know, this guy's been in prison since I was a freshman in high school and I'm almost 50. So, you know, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> and I, I want to, I, I want to just build on what Jim said to say back when Jim and I first started the clinic, it, it we had different responses from, and we still occasionally get it from the mm -hmm. DA's offices, <laughs> but one of our cases, um, it, the arm, Lamont Armstrong was one of our clients. He was exonerated in 2012. But when we presented to the DA's office, to the elected district attorney and his chief assistant district attorney, we always, when possible, present the case to them before we file. He said, the chief assistant said, just what Jim said. Um, you know, I, I see that we are not, these are, these are very serious constitutional claims you've raised. Um, we are not going to raise any procedural bars that might, it deserves, this case deserves a hearing on the merits. All of the claims deserve a hearing on the merits. The hearing date was set and we proceeded to prepare individually. And um, two months before the hearing date, I received a phone call and it was from that assistant district attorney. And he said, first he said, how are you doing? You're enjoying your summer. I'm like, why is he calling me? He's not my friend. He's, um, but he said, while they were preparing for their hearing, the, um, the uh, detective who was helping him prepare re-investigated and re-ran some of the forensic evidence in the case and solved the murder. And it was a different perpetrator that our client had spent 17 years in prison for crime he did not commit and only because a prosecutor was interested and a detective, kind of an extraordinary detective was interested in cold cases and wanted to learn about them. He um, solved it and they expedited the hearing and released our client. Now that can't happen in this case because no crimes occurred, but the attitude, the approach, and it was like that in this case, when I first talked to the assistant district attorney on the other side, he was very interested. He wanted to talk to our expert who is 99% of the time is a, an expert for the prosecution in the state of North Carolina. But on these cases, she has she wants to correct the injustices that occurred before uh, the science uh, caught up with itself. And so she gave us a really good report um, and he wanted to meet with her. But then something happened between that point. He never met with her. But, and I encouraged him. I said, I don't even need to be there. Meet with her. But between that expression of genuine interest and the date that we received the response, the official filed response to the motion in the case, it was a sea change. And one reason for that, we believe, is I we later determined we, we we figured out and it was confirmed 
that he actually didn't write the response. He had the assistance of the attorney general's office that wrote the response, which was quite different from what we were expecting in, in, in the case. And, and you know, tragic in, in my opinion. So um, what do you see as the prognosis in this case at this point? Well, I mean, you know, we're not going to make a prediction about what the judge might do. Uh, but, um, you know, what, what we tell our students in the clinic is that uh, we never give up, ever, 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 never give up. So uh, we believe he's innocent uh, and we will figure out how to prove it. Um, and if it doesn't happen in the superior court, uh, you know, we'll go to the next court and the next court uh, until eventually, uh, you know, we convince somebody to focus on the facts. Uh, and when they do that, uh, they can't defend uh, the conviction in this case. Um, you know, we, we tell our students in the clinic that I... Uh, you know, when, when a wrongful conviction happens, the first thing we have to do is figure out how it happened. And then the second thing we have to do is to look for the loose threads that will allow us to unravel it. Uh, because it's not a, it's not a smoking gun. Uh, it's much more subtle than that, uh, which means that, you know, the prosecutor and the attorney general have to be willing to look at the threads and, and not, you know, pretend that, uh, you know, you need a smoking gun in order to uh, demonstrate that somebody innocent uh, was uh, wrongfully convicted. And um, Teresa, I have one other uh, question. You said that this came to you and the judge told you that there was another innocent uh, uh, person. Um, how, did he know? And I, I mean, I've just flabbergasted that a judge would say that uh, because that's just like, you don't hear that. <laughs> no, not, not usually. Um, he he um, knew it, uh, believed it uh, because he, he had been a defense lawyer at the time the case arose and uh, stay and had been approached by the family, but more importantly, um, uh, he followed the case, knew what the case involved, was a, a, a student of the times. He was, he, he always believed, he knew uh, Junior Chandler, um, doubted that uh, Mr. Chandler could have uh, done this and then saw the evidence and, and didn't believe it. I'm making some, he didn't tell me why he believed it, but I, I know who he is, where he, where he practiced, what his, how he touched this case. And I know him from the other case. He understood how these cases came to be. He understood, you know, sort of the, the, the hysterical impetus uh, for these cases and, and that once, as Jim Coleman pointed out, the impulse is to protect these children. I have a four-year-old granddaughter. If I thought she had been abused, every fiber of my being would be to protect her, to find out what happened. Um, but I'm also, because just like 
the good judge who said he was innocent, I know what leads to false reports. Um, and uh, I, I, I caution my nieces who have young children not to laugh when the child tells the teacher that mommy went out of town this weekend and left me home alone and I ate popcorn and hot dogs all weekend. I said, because don't laugh because it's important to tell them you have to tell the truth because those stories get believed. Um, the other part of the tragedy, David, we haven't talked about is Pam and Buddy. Uh, Pam and Buddy were the, were the married people on the bus. They were charged as well. They could, could not comprehend what was happening. Pam, we now know, was like when she was questioned about it, said, I don't know, are you talking about boys, girls? I don't, she didn't even understand what was happening, but their lawyers represented them. No guardians were appointed to kind of protect them from lawyers' impulse, lawyer, you know, our impulses to get the best deal we can for our client. Very quickly, those lawyers got uh, uh, truthful testimony agreements, plea deals, that they would testify truthfully um, in a trial against Junior. And they both had um, received no active jail time. Um, but they were, you know, when the, these highlight summaries were prepared, uh, they were prominent in the summaries. And actually, when you look at the full interviews, it's a lot about the two of them and what they were doing on the bus and they were taking each other's clothes off. But the tragedy is that they, and the third tragedy, I mean, it's just the ripple effect, is these children have grown up believing that they were victims of horrible abuse and we haven't talked about the specific allegations very quickly involved being put on a junior, Mr. Chandler driving this van with kids and Pam and Buddy in it to the riverside, two different locations at the riverfront, putting them on boats and abusing them out on boats, doing all kinds of horrible things with, you know, to them. And these children have grown up believing it because they were two to five. They were too young to really have reliable, you know, they, those are their memories. They were told, they testified in two trials, most of them. They were told they were repeatedly interviewed. They were rewarded when they, they received letters of support when they were afraid to testify from well-meaning people around the nation who were part of Mothers in Action or the Believe the Children movement, these nonprofits that sprung up. Um, and it just was a, a, a really unprecedented time, though we're seeing some of it today, as I said, but an unprecedented time that victimized uh, so, so many people, uh, you know, Mr. Chandler uh, down to the, to the youngest child in the group. And then um, kind of my final question, and uh, I'm hoping maybe the students can uh, answer this one, but you know, how do you guys uh, decide what cases uh, to take um, and, and what's, what's kind of the, uh, what are you looking for uh, when, when you decide to take on a case? That's, a better, so that's can... a better question for Jim Coleman, but I'll let Meredith answer it, but they don't, I adore, I adore <laughs> these students and they're great, but they don't decide which cases. <laughs> no, I understand. No. <laughs> I was just going to talk about the Innocence Project a little bit since I kind of had both sides and then let Professor Coleman answer. But um, from, from my experience, and again, like Professor Newman said, we don't pick the cases. 
But um, for the Innocence Project, we kind of get the initial review of the case sometimes. Um, and so we'll, we'll start by the framework, okay, is this person actually innocent? So we will think like they are guilty. How do we show that they are innocent? And so we'll go through the case. And if we think and believe and the evidence supports that the person is innocent, then we'll kind of flag the wrongful convictions clinic. That's the experience that I've had with it, but um, turn it over to Professor Coleman. Well, that was good. Jim's, Jim's getting the actual answer from somebody else. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I just had a phone uh, ring. Um, well, what we, we do is, uh, you know, because we, we generally don't have uh, cases that, that have DNA, uh, so we're looking for the equivalent of, you know, DNA in, in non-biological evidence. Uh, and what we do uh, is to look at the factors that have led to wrongful convictions, you know, factors that are set out in Brandon Garrett's book, for example. Um, and we look for those factors in cases uh, where people uh, write to us and say that they're innocent uh, and they want us to investigate their cases. We turn down most of the cases uh, of people uh, in prison who ask for our help. But when we find a case where the person is claiming actual innocence, had no role in what happened, uh, and uh, there's no forensic evidence, no physical evidence that links the person to the crime. And we find one or more of the factors that contribute to wrongful convictions, you know, um, uh, false uh, uh, confessions, eyewitness identifications, misconduct by the police, misconduct by the prosecutors, junk science. Uh, then those are the cases that we are more likely to take. Uh, and then the, the last step is that we have to find some way that we think we can prove innocence, right? That there is some route that we can, by which we can demonstrate that this person is innocent because we're proving a negative, right? Uh, and and that, that's sort of the beauty of, you know, uh, John, uh, and Meredith re referred to the impossibility chart, the exhibit, but that's the beauty of it because, you know, it's one of those occasions where we actually prove that we prove a negative, right? We prove that it didn't happen because it couldn't have happened during the period that they said it did. All right. Um, and then I, I guess maybe everybody can kind of go around one more time and and just give kind of your final thoughts here. Um, we only have a few seconds left, um, but um, let's start with Meredith. Um, yeah, well, again, just thank you for having us. And the last thing that I wanted to bring up is just more about Mr. Chandler himself. Um, so like we've said before, he, he was 29 when he was convicted, wrongfully convicted and he will turn 64 in September. So he, he's been in jail longer than John or I have been alive. Um, his sons were seven and three at the conviction, and now they're 40 and 36 roughly with children of their own. His father passed away. He contracted COVID-19 in jail. Uh, this, this story is just, is, it's really sad. Like Professor Newman said, there's so many victims in this story. 
And I would just like emphasize the human aspect here and Mr. Chandler sitting in jail for a crime that he did not commit. And John? Yeah, just to echo the same thing. I think this whole case really has taken, you know, the law and the practice of it, you know, out of a textbook and, you know, made it personal because I think, you know, a lot of law school or what you read on the news, you don't really think that that's a person. It's just some, a story you read or something you see. Um, and it's been really eye-opening to know that, you know, we're working on work and we're really working to bring justice to a scenario where there really hasn't been any since the 1980s. Um, and so it's been a delight to be here. Um, but the circumstances are just really heartbreaking. Um, and that's why we're doing the best we can to help right the wrong. And Dave, your thoughts? I think uh, both of them said that uh, very, very well. Uh, this is certainly a different area and a different practice and different outcomes and concerns and effects on people than my commercial practice. Uh, you, you read the motion for appropriate relief and I encourage people to do that in page after page after page after page of, of clear errors, uh, clear lies and, and you know bad science. And it's just, it is heartbreaking, I think, think as John said, um, but these are real people, real lives that, uh, you know, have been destroyed by these wrongful convictions. Jim? Well, um, you know, when throughout my career, uh, the one thing that I've always wanted uh, on the other side of a case that I litigated was an honest lawyer. Um, I have a I have a quote from Abraham Lincoln in my office about if you can't be an honest lawyer, then choose some other profession. Um, and I think that that's often what it comes down to in these cases. When we have lawyers on the other side who are not indifferent, who care about whether or not uh, an innocent person is in prison, who's honest about reviewing the facts, then we have a chance to uh, to remedy an injustice. And I think too often we have people who are indifferent uh, and people who are, as a result of being indifferent, are not honest lawyers. And Teresa, I give you the last word. Uh, my last word is, is really, I want to thank you, David, for giving us this opportunity. And what, what it's just a mixture of emotions for me uh, tied in to, it, all about the case and where the case stands right now. And I'm not sure we told you that, but the judge has issued an order denying five of the seven claims and has invited us to brief the last two. So we are working on more than just briefing the last two, but that's where it stands right now. And they were denied on procedural grounds. So that that's the great tragedy. But the other thing I want to say is that having an opportunity just to be on the on, in an interview or you know to be with my colleagues working on the same case when they were being interviewed by someone else and hearing um, how the case has touched them how they think about justice and how they think about um, it, you know it, it, what, what needs to be improved moving forward is just you know just um, inspiring and uh, I don't know if you noticed but I as people were talking I was taking uh, taking notes to you know add to our um, add to our to my long list of inspirational statements people have made so I want to thank them for for being part of the team and for um, you know it's so much easier to do this work when you have really good people working with you so and pe and when you have people interested in the story David like you are so appreciate that
Well, I want to thank you all for coming on and, and sharing this amazing story and kind of depressing story. But unfortunately, this is, uh, in fact, reality. It's real people, real lives. I think, uh, you know, sometimes uh, when, when I talk to my students I, um, and send them into court, I always remind them that they're, they're leaving the college bubble and they're going into the real world where real people are facing real problems in their lives, uh, which I think is always important to remind students of. And, and this is a good reminder uh, for me as well. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with the Duke Wrongful Conviction Clinic on the case of Junior Chandler, who was convicted in 1987. As I mentioned, I was a freshman in high school in 1987, and now I'm nearly 50. Um, so that's how long uh, that is. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.